Gospel reading, Luke chapter 18, 31 through 43. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning. I'm I'm so glad to see you. I'm all, you know when when it's announced ahead of time that I'm preaching, I'm always curious who's going to show up. Uh, what a passage this is. Uh, Luke tells us in the beginning of Luke. Let's see if I can get my Bible open here. Luke tells us in Luke one, verse four that he's writing and he's collecting all the material. He's a good historian. He's collecting all this material. And he says so that you might know the exact truth about things that have been taught. And prior to that, in verse 3, I should have said, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you. And I'm reading from the New American Standard that shows a bias of the translator. It says, in consecutive order. But actually, the term there is correct in the, in the New International Version uh, that most of you are using. It says, in an orderly fashion. So Luke is not so interested in consecutive order as he's, entered, as he's interested in laying out his argument. Now, it is in a consecutive order to some degree. He parts from Mark and Matthew. We follow Mark and Matthew and Luke pretty closely up to Luke 9.51. And then at that point, Luke shifts and he includes a lot of teaching that is not included in the other Gospels. And then we pick up with uh, Matthew and Mark again in the passage that we're reading today. And I'm convinced of uh, two or three things. One is this. I'm going to give you two. One is that Luke has a purpose for everything that he has put in what order he's put it. He's telling us that he's putting this in consecutive order. He is putting things in a certain place in his writing that he might develop our thinking in a certain way about what's, what has gone on. And so what we'll discover is that this episode in uh, Jericho is, is here at this particular place because Luke wants to use this as an active life illustration of what Jesus has been teaching us in that section from 951 to this uh, chapter 18. 
and we're going to see how that connects up. The second thing I want to uh, tell you that I'm absolutely convinced about is that none of the healings, none of the miracles of Jesus are just uh, kind of willy-nilly. They're not just because he, he was uh, interested in doing a miracle. I think, uh, I think this is a good time to do a miracle. I think I'll do one. Uh, it's, uh, it, the, the calming of the sea had a purpose. Uh, the raising of Lazarus had a purpose. And the healing of this blind man has a purpose. There's something going on that is deeper than just the healing. Certainly there were other blind people there at the gates of Jericho. Why this one? What is this all about? And so we're going to see here in our text today that this is a healing of blindness, not only of one man, but of many people. And we're going to see how that happens. Now, to begin, uh, as we begin, I have to confess that I feel like <clears throat> wearing this particular microphone, I should be dropping down a rope from a helicopter and, uh, and should be with a bunch of elves who are kind of running around doing something on Christmas. I, you know, this feels odd. And uh, I have a bit of a loud voice, so I don't really believe I need a microphone, but I'm going to use it. And I just want to tell you that because I may fumble with it. It just feels, feels odd to me. Let's pray as we begin. Our God in heaven, it is such a joy, such a humbling privilege to be here today to share this little bit of work Uh, with these good people. And I'm so thankful for their presence. I'm so thankful for their love for you. And especially that they are here because if they knew my own hypocrisy, if they knew my failings, they really might not be willing to listen. Guide us through this passage and uh, guide our thinking and our uh, emotions and help us develop our spiritual lives together. For In this few little moments in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, uh, we want to set the stage here. And I, have, I have my notes, and I have to tell you that you've heard me preach before. I have notes, but sometimes I, I just don't pay attention to them. So I'm, I'm going to do my best today to do that. So to set the stage for this, let's go back again to uh, chapter 951, just to point out where, where, um, uh, what is happening. In chapter 951, when Luke leaves off from Matthew and Mark, it says, and it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension. Now again, this is very early in the gospel of Luke, but he's already, uh, he's already thinking. Jesus is already looking forward to the time when he's going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, he's going to be resurrected, he's going to ascend uh, uh, back to heaven. And it says, when the time is coming for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has in mind that he's going to Jerusalem. That's what he's up to. And everything that intervenes from 951 all the way to 18 and 19, uh, all that that intervenes is on the way. He is on the way. And he's, he's got his head in that direction. The Old Testament says his face was set like flint. There's no turning back. And we learn in chapter 19, verse 1, and in Matthew and Mark, that he's planning on passing through Jericho, not staying. So, He's on his way. Jericho is 17 miles from Jerusalem. It's a long walk, but he's on his way. He's earnestly deciding to do that. Now, further in chapter 9, toward the end of chapter 9, 
It says, you remember, Jay was telling us that Jesus was sending out first the disciples two by two, the twelve two by two, and then the seventy-two two by two as advanced teams before him to all the towns and villages that he was going to visit. And they were to talk about the kingdom of God is near. They, were, they had the power to heal. They had the power to cast out demons. And so there's been quite a bit of advanced teams going ahead. And here at the end of chapter 9, we hear that uh, in uh, verse 52, he sent messengers ahead of him, and they uh, went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, and they did not receive him because he was headed for Jerusalem. Now again, the prejudice of the people in Samaria was that the people, the Jews who, who were in Galilee and in Judea, that they were wrong. And their theologies were at loggerheads, and they viewed each other as uh, kind of subhuman uh, in many ways. There was a great deal of racism. There was a great deal of animosity between them. And because Jesus had been going north the first time when he went through Sychar, the woman at the well, uh, they were welcoming, but when he was heading south toward Jerusalem, they don't want him. And so we read in chapter 10 that he's going along the border of Galilee and Samaria. He's traveling south. He gets to the border of Galilee and Samaria. He sends an advanced team to the Samaritan cities. They won't have him. So he travels along the border east. He crosses over the Jordan River. He comes down through a region called Perea, which simply means the other side, meaning the other side of the river. And he comes back in to Judea, crosses the River Jordan at Jericho. So that's where we find him. He's coming into Jericho. But remember, he sends advanced teams. And so he's already sent an advanced team into Jericho. And there have been the evangelists that have been going out through all of Galilee. And so knowledge of this miracle worker from Nazareth, this rabbi from Nazareth, has reached Jericho. And they're well aware that he's coming. He sent an advanced team to make preparations, but they're just passing through. So here comes Jesus across the Jordan River. He's not alone. He's got his entourage. And his entourage are at least the twelve probably in uh, their wives, maybe their families. Some of the 72 and their families, along with other pilgrims who are coming down uh, uh, from Galilee, headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. It is a large group that is coming through. So it's, it's quite a group that's coming down the road, headed toward Jericho. And the advanced team has already gone into Jericho. They said, Jesus, we're making preparations for Jesus from Nazareth. And these people said, oh, we know, we've heard about this man. And so they send a group of people out to meet him, to welcome him to their fair city. So now not only do we have Jesus and the disciples and maybe their families and part of the 72 and their families and other pilgrims, we have the people from Jericho who are coming out. And this is one raucous, happy group of people who are coming in. Now, before we think that Jericho is just some uh, little village in Palestine, it is not. It was the place of Herod's winter palace. It was, uh, it was a nice, pleasant, uh, excuse me, summer palace. It was a nice, pleasant location. Cool uh, breezes coming down out of Galilee and off the Jordan. It was, it was near, uh, right near the uh, most abundant spring 
in all of Palestine. Plenty of water. Uh, More than half the priests and Levites that served in the temple of Jerusalem lived in Jericho. It's a large city. And not only is it a large city, it has parks. It has fountains. It has pools. It has orchards, date palms. In the Old Testament, it is called the City of Palms. Its name, there's two possibilities for its name. One is City of the Moon, uh, meaning perhaps they were moon worshipers at one time. Or a city of fragrance, which is more likely, meaning it was a city that you smelled the flowers, you smelled the fruit, you smelled the, the uh, uh, water on the wind as you came to it. It is an important place. And Jesus is passing through. Now in Palestine, in Palestine the, the tradition is that a city goes out to welcome an important guest who's coming in. And they are ready to throw a party. Uh, so we think about this. I'm, uh, um, Kenneth Bailey, in his book, uh, Jesus Through Palestinian Eyes, or Through Mideastern Eyes, excuse me, uh, tells of an incident uh, with, uh, when he was living in, in Asuet, Egypt, when President Nasser was at its height. Nasser was the second president of Egypt, 1956 to 1970. Extremely popular. He'd been a soldier in a suit. The people loved him. And the people went out, a mob of thousands went out when the president was coming to visit. And his motorcade was coming. And they went 10 miles out from the city. And they, and they stopped the motorcade. And they made all the drivers in the motorcade shut off their engines And the crowd of thousands tied ropes to the bumpers of the car and towed it into Asuet because they so loved this man. This is the crowd. They're going out to Jesus. This is a chance to meet this man. Not only to meet him, to welcome this well-known miracle worker to their own city. And so they're going out. And we have this crowd coming down the street. This is an enormously happy occasion. Enormously happy occasion. They are glad to have him coming. Man, the folding chairs and tables are already being set up in the VFW or the community center. Uh, they, the barbecue is on. Uh, the uh, local dignitaries are kind of warming up their little speeches. Someone is uh, looking for the key to the city. I mean, they are ready to have this man come join them. It's, it's Palestinian hospitality writ large, and this is an important city. An important man, important city. And they're coming down the road. That's the setup. Let's look at our passage again. Let's, let's, and I also want to point out, I included verses uh, 31 to 34 because three times to this point, Jesus has said explicitly that he's going to Jerusalem to be abused and to be crucified and, and to die there. He said that explicitly. Seven times he has told them that he's going there to die, if you include the times that he has clearly implied it, that we understand by looking backward, that it might have been difficult for you if you were right there in his presence the first time. But when we read verse 34, they understood none of these things. They could not comprehend it. So they just couldn't grasp it. And I want you to get that as well, because they are in the middle of this, and they do not understand that Jesus is 
going to Jerusalem to be crowned king. The very next major event that we see is the triumphal entry. There's some things happen in between, but the next major event is the triumphal entry. He is going as the coming king. He's going to be crowned. They don't get it. They don't understand what this is all about. Which, by the way, makes me, encourages me, because I don't get a lot of stuff. Verse 35, out of our text. And it came about that as he was approaching Jericho, we've talked about Jericho, a certain blind man, we know this man's name from Matthew and Mark. His name was Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. And he was sitting on the road begging. Beggars in Palestine had a role that was important, and people accepted them as part of the community. Every pious person was obligated before God to give alms to the poor, and beggars gave you the opportunity to give alms. They provided that particular, uh, that particular service to the community. So they were, they were welcomed as a part of the community, but were marginalized. Before we think too much uh, about this, to think that's a little too crass, and by the way, they had a whole kind of greeting that happened between an almsgiver and a beggar, and it was, a, you know, this, this blessing is alms, and the beggar would stand up and say, may God bless you, and, uh, and, and all of this, and it went back and forth. And Jesus talks about uh, some who not only gave, but they had trumpeters go before them while they were doing this. And so we understand that this, but it's not as crass as you think. Before welfare in the United States, communities had to take care of the poor and the destitute. And they had the community chest. And anyone who was a philanthropist, who had means, who gave in a local community, was, was lauded. They were acknowledged, and it was an important thing. And, and uh, the poor served that role. It's less crass than even that. Unrenowned who gave his life to serving those with uh, uh, mental uh, handicaps, mental uh, deficiencies, mental, uh, I'm trying to think, what is the term we use today? Limitations. <laughs> That's not coming. And, and we think of Corey Tenboom in, uh, in the hiding place. When she is confronted, she's, uh, the Nazis who had taken over Holland in 1940 disallowed the continuation of any youth clubs of any kind. And all youth clubs, including church groups, church youth groups were taken over by the Nazis and became a means of indoctrinating them in Nazi philosophy. But Corey kept on with a group of Down syndrome adults. And she's leading them on uh, young adults, and she's leading them in a park. They're holding hands together, and she's confronted by uh, a Nazi captain who, in a long conversation, demands to know of what value is anyone who is so mentally deficient. Why isn't Corey spending her time teaching those who can even understand? And her response, in some, a longer response, was, they teach us to serve. Now, that's a very interesting idea. It's a very interesting idea. The next time you're confronted by someone on the street, you might ask yourself if God is trying to teach you to serve. 
might be worth considering. Well, here's a certain blind man, verse 35. And hearing the multitude going by, there's a very interesting word. Hearing means he perks up his ears. He is suddenly very aware. He's, he's paying attention. And he began to inquire what this might be. Now, this is, this is just... Uh, the Bible sometimes, when we translate things, is so bland... Um, when we read in, in uh, Genesis that God brings Eve to Adam and he then stands up and gives this kind of philosophical dissertation, oh, bone of my bone, and, you know, and all of this. And you think, gee whiz, Adam. <laughs> you know, the Hebrew's a little better. He says something like, oh boy. <laughs> you know? And here, this is in the imperfect form. And so he began inquiring, means he began, he just continued asking, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on, who is it? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Now up to this point, none of the crowd is at him yet. So it has to be those around him. It's got to be some other beggar. It's got to be some other person sitting on the ground waiting for alms. You see, what's going on? Verse 37, and they told him, again, flat, Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Just, you know, it's like the old dragnet shows, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. There's no life to that. I mean, there's life, there's something going on here. There's this raucous, large crowd, noisy crowd coming toward him. It's different than just the, the basic pilgrims coming in. There's a lot of noise. A lot of noise. So the blind man, his ears pick up. What is this? What's going on? I want to tell you that I believe that this man heard the advance team. He knew Jesus was coming. He knew that this man who was a miracle worker was coming. And he put himself at the gate in order to cut him off. This is my chance. This is my chance. He is planning for this moment. What's going on? And then this wonderful thing. And he called out. That means to scream. He screams at the top of his lungs. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And again, I love the translation, direct translation is mercy me. And the reason I like that is because my grandmother used to say that whenever my cousins and I would do something. She said, mercy me, you know, (laughs) Jesus, son of David, mercy me. And again, that's in the imperfect mode, meaning he doesn't just yell at once. This man is yelling it. He's yelling. He's not going to miss this opportunity. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Just keep shouting it. So next verse. And those who led the way sternly rebuked him. Um. This is a sharp rebuke, is the term that's used. Mark says it even harder. He uses a word that says simply, shut up. Mind your place. You don't belong in the middle of this. First lesson in our passage. First lesson. Even those 
Even those who welcome Jesus with joyous abandon. Even those who surround Jesus and love him deeply. Even those who spend time with him to learn from him can be and are frequently guilty of marginalizing other people and preventing them from finding access to Jesus. Good people, godly people, kind people. Well, how do we do this? Probably a thousand different ways. I cannot begin to tell you the number of times that when we've been sitting in worship that my wife has poked me and said that visitor doesn't have an order of worship. Donna's so polite. She never gives me a direct command, but that is, that is, get up, go get an order of worship, and give it to them. And by the way, open it to the right page and show them where we're at and what the bold means. And, you know, we, when we first came here, we came from a congregation when one of our friends who would get depressed would start up front here and his depression would lead him a pew back and a pew back and Sunday by Sunday he'd be in the back until he'd be standing against the back wall. He'd be so depressed and then he would disappear for a couple of weeks and then he'd be back there against the back wall and suddenly uh, something would happen and Ken would begin to dance in the spirit and he would dance down the aisle. He'd come down the aisle, and I can't remember the young man's name who was uh, from Puerto Rico. Uh, He didn't care who was dancing, but he was going to join him. So he'd just jump right in behind him, and they would dance down the aisle. Well, that's where we were worshiping, you know, a congregation where when when the first Sunday I was there visiting, uh, one, of the, uh, um, one of the members stood up and said, Church, it's offering time. And everyone stood up and applauded. My word, I'd never seen that. <laughs> and we came here. My sister-in-law came and says, Don't you sing songs, any songs that are at least more recent than 200 years ago? What shuts people out? We don't know. We have to think about this. How do we bring people in? How do we pave a way for them? And and I'm going to suggest to you that much much of this marginalization is totally uh, uh, totally unintentional. And And it comes from a place where we, in our exuberance, in our joyous abandon for Christ simply are unaware of those around us. And in other occasions, it is because we choose to meet Jesus on our terms and not his. Now, Jesus understands that these people are saying, you're going to meet us, you're going to deal with us on our terms, but he breaks free of that notion quite quickly. So let's look a little further here. And those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more. <laughs> you, ever, you ever been someplace with a young child and you're trying to tell them, be quiet, and they just get louder? That's what this is. The word here means he becomes shrill. He is now really screaming. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, it's time to point out something. 
in the New Testament, in the Gospels, only two people ever, two people ever used that term for Jesus. One was a Syrophoenician woman, uh, a woman who came, a foreigner who came from the region of Lebanon, an outsider, not an Israelite, who, like the blind man, is demanding that Jesus do something for her. She calls him son of David, and this blind man, a foreigner and a blind man. Now, what's significant is that this title is a messianic title. It recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, the crowd said it's Jesus of Nazareth, or his friend said it's Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David. And this is the kingly Messiah. This is the one that in 2 Samuel, the guarantee of God that there would be a descendant of David who would sit on the throne of David forever. And this man is crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. One of only two people in the whole uh, New Testament, rather in in the Gospels, who recognize Jesus for who he is. Now remember also, up to this time, Jesus has disallowed his disciples or anyone else to acknowledge him publicly as the Messiah. He revealed himself as a Messiah to only one other person, and that was the woman at the well at Sychar. So, what happens next is astounding. Verse 40, look at this closely. And Jesus stopped. The word there says he stood still. (laughs) Rabbis always taught as they walked. They talked and walked. And they Uh, They took questions from others as they were walking. They took the opportunity to teach and to interact with the crowd. And here's this loud, raucous crowd, a large crowd around Jesus coming down the road into Jericho. And and there's this, this blind man who's trying to make himself heard over the crowd, and Jesus stops still. Well, we're going to unpack that in just a minute. What I want to point out is that this now we see that Luke is using this event to unpack the parable we find at chapter 18, same chapter, in the, in the first few verses. Jesus was telling a parable to show that all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Verse 1 of chapter 18 saying there was a certain judge who did not fear God nor respect man. You know this? The widow comes. She's demanding protection under the law. The judge won't hear her. She keeps coming. She keeps coming. She keeps coming. He gets tired of hearing her. He doesn't respect God. He doesn't respect men. But he listens to the woman. He finally says, just give her what she wants. And verse 7 Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay over them? Verse 8, I tell you, he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now we've got two things running here. We've got a question by Jesus, will he find faith? And the second, when the Son of Man comes, as he's talking about himself, And he's talking about perseverance. Perseverance. Also in 
chapter 11, the same book. And in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, I think it's over in chapter 6, where we hear Jesus say, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. These are the imperative imperfects. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Just keep on knocking. Don't stop. Keep on asking. Don't stop. Keep on seeking. Don't stop. Now we find it. Now we find Luke illustrating that in this blind man. And later, at the very end of this passage, we discover the answer to will Jesus find faith when he comes and the reason, one of the reasons why he stopped still on the road. Emmett Smith, a famous running back for Dallas Cowboys. I'm not a big NFL fan, but I love this illustration. In his 15-year career, he ran, carrying the ball, 15 and, or excuse me, 10 and a half miles. That's pretty good. With someone knocking him down, some 250-pound uh, defensive uh, uh, person on the other team, knocking him down every four yards. Try it. Try to run a half marathon with someone tripping you every four yards. <laughs> you going to do it? Perseverance for the goal. Keeping going for the goal. This man has an objective. So Jesus stops. He stands still. Now this, immediately, the crowd is, is just, what's going on? Now, the next things that we need to see here are very important. Not that the foregoing weren't, but we see lesson one, we can marginalize others even if we love Christ. Lesson two, persevere. Persevere. Keep on. Keep on. If you're someone who's seeking Christ and you find that you're being marginalized by the faith community, keep on keeping on. Do not stop seeking. Third is the kingly motif. Jesus is going to be crowned king. No one has recognized who he is as king. He is the king Messiah. And suddenly he hears one Voice over all the din of this crowd who recognizes him for who he is. Now, part of the key to this is the fact that when Jesus heals the blind man, he doesn't touch him. And part of the key to this is that when he heals the blind man, when the blind man comes to him, obviously blind, he doesn't just say, you're blind, be healed, and touch him. Doesn't touch his eyes. Doesn't make mud as he had before and bathe his eyes. Doesn't do any of that. He asks them, what do you want? Here's the kingly motif. Look how it unfolds. We won't read every bit of it, but you'll see it. He sends servants to get the supplicant. A supplicant has come to the king with a request. The king sends servants out. You're never allowed in the presence of the king without an invitation. Supplicants are out there in the other room. He sends, a, he sends a servant out. Bring him in. The king, what do you want? The supplicant says, here's what I want. The king says, it's yours. 
And then the supplicant follows after the king from that point on in his debt. Here's the blind man. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, go get him. Nice little twist, don't you think? Takes the crowd that, re- that marginalized the men, sends a couple of them over to get the man, bring him over, go get him. And so he comes, he makes supplicant. What do you want? I want to see. Okay, never touches him. Simply makes the command. It's yours. Be seeing. The man sees and he follows. It's the king. It's the kingly motif. This is a remarkable passage. It is not just a simple little healing. It's one that's so jammed with lessons for us as believers, as seekers, as ones who are in the presence of the king. I I love uh, Anne Lamott. Vulgar, profane in many ways. A vulgar, profane Christian. I, I like that. Nice combination. Her favorite prayer. She said, I have two favorite prayers. The first one is, help me, help me, help me. <laughs> the second one is, thank you, thank you, thank you. I lo- that's this. It's this wonderful passage. Verse 42, so their third lesson is Jesus is king. He, he accepts the kingly motif. But we're not done. Let's look at verse 42 and 43. Your faith has made you well. What, is, uh, what does our version have here? Yeah, your faith has healed you. It's, it's very interesting that both the, the New American Standard and New International Version use that term. The term is actually, I think, more correct in the King James. The, terms, the term that, Jesus, uh, that uh, Luke uses for healing here is sozo. And it can mean one of two things, or it can mean several things, but it means largely two things. One, be healed, but it means be saved. Be saved. Now, This is, at root, a salvation story. Receiving sight. Next week, we're going to talk about the consequences of that when we look at Zacchaeus in the very next chapter. But here Jesus says to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Sozo, saved you. And immediately he received his sight and began following him, glorifying God. Now, That would be enough. We understand. That's kind of the end of the story. But someone else is healed of their blindness. Do you catch the last phrase? Did you see what happens in the end of this? And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. The very people who had marginalized the blind man are now ones who are healed of that blindness and gather around the one that Jesus has saved. Remarkable, remarkable event. Well, here's two questions I want to ask you today. 
One, I want us all to search our hearts and minds and think about ways in which we may have marginalized others. Unintentionally, perhaps, but we think that there's categories of people of value or better, more value, lesser value, and how that process may prevent us or may cause us to prevent them from being able to find their way to Jesus, that they should keep their place. But more importantly, second, what is that desire of your heart? What is that What is that one thing before God you want more than anything else? You want God to do for you more than anything. What is this thing you need? You're so tired of bringing. You've given up talking about it. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on, praying, seeking, asking, knocking at the door. This is the king. I don't know why. I don't know why some people, when they're ill, pray and they find God's healing. I don't know why some people, when they pray, do not. I don't understand that. But I do know Christ is king. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we are so thankful for the gospel of Luke, for those diligent writers, those others who loved you long before, who guide us and help us in our sojourn, our lonely pathway in Christendom. There may be someone here this morning whose heart's desire they have locked away. They're just not asking anymore, and I pray that they would open that up to you again. Just keep crying out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.